Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more week we have a conversation with the legendary michael holding if you don't know who michael holding is get to know he is a former west indies bowler and he was a tv commentator working with sky to comment on cricket and the like he announced his retirement in september uh 2021 so this year we recorded this episode back in may when he released his book why we kneel how we rise and it is a book that is a densely researched piece of conversation around race um, racial discrimination um, in sport and he has these conversations with very elite athletes such as Usain Bolt, Naomi Osaka, Thierry Henry, Michael Johnson. But in this conversation, we discuss when in July 2020, when he was on Sky Sports, he was commenting very, very openly around the lies we are told around race. And in the wake of the George Floyd killing, we had a lot of discussions around race with a lot of public commentators people that you probably wouldn't necessarily expect to be discussing race and Michael Holding took to the microphone and he had a really empowered account of his experiences with racial education growing up in Jamaica and his experiences of racism throughout his career as a cricketer. So in this conversation, we unpack what it means to be black, his own perspective growing up in Jamaica. But we also had a conversation about how he related to his father, um, the, the little discriminations that he experienced growing up in Jamaica. We talk about mental health, um, what his perspectives are on mental health. And we also talk about vulnerability so in the book he speaks to Thierry Henry like I mentioned um, but Thierry Henry writes in the book that he never felt that he was allowed or permitted to cry 
as a black man. And in the times when Thierry Henry was playing football and the times when Michael Holden was playing cricket, these weren't times where you could take to social media and express um, how you felt about, you know, an experience from the crowd to you or, um, you know, subsequent racial attacks or abuse or um, the way that we see footballers and athletes speak about their mental health and their experiences with racism today. There was this idea around resilience. Um, and, you know, if you've been following me for a while, you'll know how I feel about resilience. But I believe that resilience, there's not much use for resilience in the way that we use it. We use it as if it's an antidote to emotional hardship. We use resilience as a way to dismiss experiences. We say you should be more resilient, you have to be more resilient, you have to be stronger. And that's the implication. The implication is that we have to be stronger, we have to be uh, tougher, we have to ignore and let things slide off our back. But what resilience does, it doesn't help society change. It's saying that we should adapt to the culture, to society, to all of that. And society shouldn't adapt to the changing nature of people. And people change. And over these generations, over these decades, things have changed. Football has changed. Cricket has changed. The way that we experience these mini and emotional ruptures when it comes to racism, when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to these sorts of pain, things have changed. So... In this conversation with Michael Holding, which I was honoured to have, it felt as if I was speaking to an uncle, a grandparent. He is definitely an elder. And when I think of elders, I think of elders as having the wisdom and the intuition to be able to hold the fears and anxieties of young people in their hands and tell us things are going to be okay. Show us things are going to be okay. Things aren't necessarily going to be easy. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But that things are going to be okay. That the experiences that we go through are valid that with each generation, we have to move with a new perspective, a new sense of growth, a new idea, because humans and people change, ideas change, attitudes change. I think that we have become so used to things staying the same that we fear this idea of change. So, dialing into Michael Holding when he was in the Grand Cayman while everybody else was stuck in miserable 
UK rain um, in April, April, May, it was refreshing to hear him speak about his experiences, speak about how he grew up, speak about where he was coming from with all of this. So I'm hoping that you get just a morsel of the feeling that I had in speaking to a man who has been through so much and come out on the other end with so much peace, so much understanding, so much wisdom. And this Black History Month on the show, I'm going to be speaking to quite a few people who have so many different perspectives and ideas around blackness and mental health and vulnerability and different ideas around what that looks like. So I'm looking forward to delving in and sharing those conversations with you. So as ever, I invite you to rate, review and subscribe the podcast on wherever you listen to the podcast apple podcast is where the reviews tend to live so if you go there please but please you know follow it when we want to bump the episodes and the show up we want to get it into as many ears and phones and computer screens as possible we want to make sure that you all are hearing and sharing and doing that and it just helps the show grow and and i would appreciate it um i'd appreciate it if you could just share and rate as as you go and share it with people that you think would be interested in the episode as well and even if they aren't just slide it into their dms you know use the ep- use the podcast episodes as a way of shooting your shot guys come on now you need to be using it like hey it's time to talk how about you know you listen to this and we discuss it over wine and other things um (laughs) you know herbal tea coffees wholesomeness um but yeah guys thanks so much for being here I look forward to hearing what you think about the show. And this is my conversation with Michael Holding. Welcome, Michael. Michael Holding. Welcome to Time to Talk. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Ali. How are you doing? I am good. I am good. I'm very good as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm not yet in the UK, as you know, the test series doesn't start until early June. So I'm still back in the Caribbean, but heading there shortly. Yes, 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 yes. Can you just tell the people exactly where you are? Because I find it offensive that I have to sit in this country that doesn't understand, that doesn't know whether it's coming or going. The sun doesn't know what to do with itself. It's been raining uh, crazily. Um, and you seem to be in somewhere just, you know, very calm oh. and relaxed. I, don't, I just don't get it. I'm pretty much close to paradise right now in so many respects. One, the weather. Yeah. I am in Grand Cayman. The weather is great. It's getting a little bit hot now because we're heading towards summer, as you would realize. But the best thing about it all is that 
I don't have to worry about anything to do with the virus that's hitting the world right now. We haven't had any cases in Grand Cayman for months upon months, and there are no restrictions. We don't wear masks unless we're going to a doctor's office or into a hospital. We don't have restrictions on restaurants or bars or gathering in, in numbers. They are putting a restriction of 500, no more than 500 together, wow. which doesn't really, doesn't really mean a lot. But it's, it's very comfortable. You know, it's great. But don't worry, Alex. Summer is coming to the UK as well and it will soon warm up and be pretty good weather. Well, it needs to come soon because we've had April and we never had any showers and now we're getting all the showers in May and I'm just I'm just thinking something's off. <laughs> and I just and I would like to be in the sunshine. So, yeah. <laughs> the world weather is a little bit mixed up at the moment. You're getting some awkward weather in different you know parts what? of the world. I'll give the world that. Last year wasn't really her year. You know, like, so, you know, the world is trying to reconnect back to everything and trying to get it back to normal. Um, thank you for joining me um, on on the show today. Um, you know, apart from being like a champion cricketer and just um, all round upstanding guy, I'm here speaking to you about your book, uh, Why We Kneel, How We Rise. Um, and you know, it's a collection of um, stories around, you know, inspired by the the George Floyd murder last year, but also kind of speaking to athletes. Um, you know, we've got athletes in here such as Usain Bolt. We've got you know Hope Powell, we've got Naomi Osaka, got Thierry Henry, um, and just having these conversations around race and what it means to be a person of color in these um in these sports black um in these sports and you know when we in the post floyd era i was going to call it um we saw when football came back um in the uk we saw everybody kneeling it was just a kind of it became a commonality to see everybody kneeling we had you know bl black footballers speaking openly about racism um in the sport we have you know like loads of different we've been having loads of conversations around different industries in particular but obviously because sports being sport being the most front-facing thing at the minute because mm. um, we, that's on everybody's tv all the time it, it unites so many different communities and classes as well um and uh yeah i wanted to kick off the conversation around you and what it was like growing up in jamaica because well, yeah growing up in jamaica it it was fantastic you know as i said on so many occasions i didn't experience racism in jamaica mm. by the time i came along and recognized you know what it was supposed to be there wasn't much of that in jamaica you know i was born in 1954 i heard many stories of early days in jamaica you know the racism that took place. And I related one story about a gentleman, Mr. Evan Blake, who lived on the same road that I lived mm -hmm. on. But this happened long before I was born. And as I said, just growing up in Jamaica as a youngster, we just had a great deal of fun. I had friends from all different races. I also related a story about a young Chinese friend that we had that had skipped, uh, scampered away back home before his parents got back home from work and we didn't know i didn't know exactly why but 
We just thought he had to get home early because he didn't want his parents to come home and he wasn't in the yard. But later on, I recognized that, you know, his parents didn't want him mixing with us, with us darkies. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, we, we didn't grow up feeling that way. We didn't feel that sort, sort of racism and mm. that thought, sort of effect on our lives. We just were youngsters running around having good fun. I didn't really experience racism until I left Jamaica the first time. That, first time as a cricketer, that is. I, you know, I had traveled before. I traveled as a youngster, been to New York, I'd been down to the Eastern Caribbean. But really experiencing racism didn't come along until I went with the West Indies team to Australia in 75. Yeah. I was 21 years old by then. Yeah. That's really interesting what you say about, um, what you say about your Chinese friend um, in Jamaica. Like, I'm always interested in this because obviously Jamaica's, my family's Jamaican as well. Um, okay. um, from, you know, the north Montego Bay and down in Clarendon. Um, and it's really interesting sometimes because I always, I remember when I first saw a Chinese Jamaican person and I, when I was younger, I just was assuming like, oh, I'm in Jamaica, it's going to be loads of black people and loads of, um, then when I first, when the first few times that I went when I was, when I was much younger. Um, and, you know, the motto is out of many one people, but when exactly. but it's this this kind of this there was still this level of differentiation and you didn't see that when you were there but you just kind of thought oh that's just the way they they carry on that's just the way they act but then you hear those small little prejudices how did that make you feel when you when you, when well, you as I, said, Alex, I didn't feel it i didn't feel it as a young man growing up there were always little incidents that took place somewhere along the line as i mentioned that 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 friend that i had that was of chinese origin mm -hmm. But we didn't really, as youngsters, the rest of us didn't really feel as if, you know, he didn't want to be, he wanted to be with us. His parents obviously didn't want him, him to be. But there's always going to be the odd case where you find some bit of racism or some racist remark or some racist action by someone. But it was so minimal, it was so unusual that you didn't really come across it on a regular basis, at least in my age group. No, I did the interview with Usain Bolt. He was similar. He never came across racism. He came about three decades after me. And again, he came, he didn't come across racism. There's a classism, yes, a lot of classism, classism in Jamaica still going on. But the race, the racist part of it, the racism, I didn't come across. My mother experienced it. Her family didn't want her to marry a man that was as black as my father. So she experienced it. But again, you're going back many years before I came along. Mm. I think the whole colorism conversation is something that needs to be had, especially among Jamaicans. I don't think that we kind of have that conversation a lot. Um, I guess that is a generational thing, I suppose. You know, how are you? The thing that you know, Alex, is, is not just in Jamaica. We have been brainwashed as a people to believe that the lighter your skin, mm. the better off you are. And that's going to take a long time for it to leave society in general. The skin, the skin um, lightning cream that is, is sold all over the world is a billion dollar business because people believe what they are being told. And they see it around them that the lighter skin people, the white people and lighter skin people get ahead better than they do because those people have less hurdles to, to jump. But eventually, 
with the education, which is what I'm trying to do with this book, with proper education, people recognize that that is rubbish. They don't need mm. to be thinking in that way. And hopefully we'll get there one day. Yeah. How is it writing the book? How did you find writing it? Some parts of it were difficult. Some chapters were very hard to write very, and even to go and read them back. You know, I didn't really want to be reading them too much, too often. You know, as you do a book and you send it to the publisher, it comes back different edits and you have to go through it again. Some chapters I didn't want to go through them again. When I wrote a couple of chapters about the dehumanization of black people, I, I sent them to my sister. As a matter of fact, I, in the early days, I sent every chapter that I did to her, for her to one of my two sisters, that is, for her to go through and to have a look and see what the, she thought. And a couple of chapters I sent to her, she, she said, no, I'm not going to read this. It's too difficult. It's too hard to read. You know, my sisters are 80 and 78. So they would, they would know about racism a lot more than me. And they, they don't want to re remind me. Mm -hmm. So are you the youngest? Yeah, I'm the youngest in the family. Okay. Okay. So are you the most outspoken? Well, I suppose you could say that. You know, my father hardly ever said anything unless he was at work. When he, he was a builder and contractor. When he was on his building site, he, he would say a few things. Apart from that, very quiet. My mother being a teacher, of course, was a, was a lot more outgoing. Okay. Okay. Um, that being said, though, because I know on this, on this show, we speak a lot about um, mental health um, and mental well-being. Yeah. And um, I wanted to kind of look at the, just in three parts, just looking at how kind of your mental health was kind of challenged in, in those kind of areas of your, of your life. So if we start with like growing up, you know, you said your, your father didn't really speak much. Um, how did that kind of dictate how you felt about him, but how you felt about being a man um, as well? You know, we're conditioned really to not talk. Um, and not necessarily have these conversations or I know in your book you when you spoke to Thierry Henry and he said you know black men aren't supposed to cry that's something that yeah. you know, black men aren't supposed to do um, and that really kind of stuck, stuck with me because that's kind of the stuff that I kind of look at and I work on um, emotionality when it comes to men and how we express and what that looks like with vulnerability and you know and um, one of the reasons I was so keen to speak to you is because of when you're on sky and you know and you're tearing up and you you're crying and upset and um you know and actually you know seeing that making knowing that it's okay for that to happen um because you have feelings you know um what was that like and what did you learn from your your dad in in that respect and how did that kind of you know guide you through your cricket career and all of that stuff and becoming a dad yourself alex, alex i don't worry about preconceived ideas about people, mm. whether they are it's about their sex or their race or their religion. I don't worry about things like that. I have emotions. I, I express my emotions under various circumstances and various conditions, the way my emotions say they should be expressed. When you talk about theory saying he was taught or the, the theory is black men aren't supposed to cry because they, they are perceived then as weak. I, I don't care. I cried on a cricket field when I was 21 years old in Australia. And I didn't just go and hide my face to cry. I, if I feel like crying, I cry. I don't 
try and suppress my, my emotions. I don't worry about what other people think. I worry about me and how I express myself. And, you know, that, that is fine with, with me. You know, people have had mental issues because they can't handle what they are supposed to do, what they are thought of as supposed to be the way they are. I am not supposed to be anywhere or any way. I am me. So I don't allow those issues to interfere with my life. And perhaps that's the reason why I don't think I've had any mental issues or any stress issues and that sort of a thing. I know my mother later on in life, I found this out. I know that my mother had to take a pill every day. I don't, shouldn't say her life because I don't know about her youth. But I know when she was married to my dad and we're coming up as a family, my sisters told me much later on. I, think I, did, I don't think I knew until she had died, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. And she didn't die until 2001. Okay. So she, she was under pressure, perhaps because of the fact of her family mm -hmm. and her being ostracized from her family. I don't know. I would hate to believe that it, that is the reason. I would believe that it is something a little bit more genetic than that. But she lived her life in my eyes, enjoying her life. But at the same time, I found out about the fact that she was under stress and was taking a pill every day to try and calm herself. And I don't know the issues, but I didn't have those issues. Mm -hmm. And how did you later think of your dad then? Well, my dad is my dad. That's, that's the way he is. When he's honest at work, he's very expressive. And he uses some languages that I wouldn't try to use here, you know, because he's at his work and he's serious about his work. The rest of the time, he's very calm, he's very cool, he's very collected. You know, when things are happening at home, around the dining table, you know, my mother is a person who is more vociferous and talking about various things. And he's just there calm, taking it, taking things in. That's just him. Okay. Or I should say that was just him. That was just him. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think that um, we kind of, in some ways, we model the closest representation to ourselves, especially when we're in the home, you know? So sometimes I look mm -hmm. at and the conversations I've been having, a lot of guys, they kind of, they modeled a lot of what their dads did. Um, until obviously they took a step aside and thought, you know, actually that doesn't work for me. I need to kind of just do what I want to do. It's like literally what you've just said, like you, you didn't really care. You just kind of did what you did and had always did the way you had to do. So it's always interesting to see kind of where people um, kind of navigate that kind of understanding of who they are through the mirror of someone else. Well, when I was a young man growing up, I was very shy. I didn't say a lot either. And that is why when I was approached from the very first time to do radio commentary, I thought the person approaching me, although he was a good friend, was, was mad. You know, that's not me. Yeah. But as time goes on, you know, you mature and you, you change your, in some ways. Even as time went on and I changed and became a bit more outspoken, I wouldn't volunteer opinions if I'm asked. Fine, I'll give you my opinion. Yeah. But apart from that, I just kept things to myself. And that's why even when I spoke out on Sky last summer, 
a lot of people were shocked. Mm -hmm. A lot of my friends in Newmarket, when I went back to Newmarket, they were, they were saying, oh my God, I didn't know you had those thoughts and you didn't know you. But I was never asked. I don't express myself unless I'm asked. Mm -hmm. That kind of speaking, let's just spoken to kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> just got to go and just crack on with what you got to do. Um, where were you when George Floyd was murdered? Right here in Grand Cayman, last year in May. Just a, a year, a year ago now, as a matter of fact, almost a year. Yeah. How did that affect you? To be honest, it's something that I grew accustomed to seeing in America. It was shocking to actually see it and to watch it for, for so long, and especially to see the smirk on Charvin's face. That really irritated me. But it's something that I see in America. I lived in America for quite a few years. I saw it on the news on a regular basis, on the news regularly, not as graphically as that, because until recently, people didn't, weren't filming these murders. Then people didn't have cameras on the phone to be able to catch it like that. As so many people have said, the murders in America have not gone up. It's just that they have now been filmed mm -hmm. and people are much more aware of them because they are being filmed. So it was not a huge shock to me. I found it disgusting. I found it something that should just unbelievable, but it was not a surprise. Yeah. So it not being a surprise to you and kind of like, and, and the like, you know, why do you think it was so impactful though, this time around? I grew up and I don't know, when I was growing up, I don't really remember any of these things, but when I was, what, 21, um, that is when Trayvon Martin was killed and then Mike Brown and then Eric Garner and then Sheikh Bayou, and then all those guys. Um, mm -hmm. I was around 21. I have no recollection of hearing anything about police brutality, black men be being killed by the police prior to that. No recollection. I'm no word of a lie. So what, why do you think the, the George Floyd murder was so impactful when it happened. Perfect storm, Alex. The pandemic was on, people were not at work. People could, could hit the streets. They had no obligations of saying, oh, I have to go to work. They could hit the streets. And everybody hit the streets all over the world to show their displeasure. You have had this demonstrations previously about murders in America, but with people having their commitments, people having their jobs, they would demonstrate for a day or two or in the night after work, and they knew they had to be in their offices or had to go back to work next day. With this one, people were on the streets every day because they were not losing their jobs. And of course, with this one, we did not just have people of color on the streets. We had people supporting the people of color, people from other, as Thierry Anne would say, the people from others <laughs> who saw our community hurting, deciding, no, this is rubbish. 
and we're going to support these people. And if you look at the faces out on the streets, way back when in the Martin Luther King days, 95% of the people demonstrating were black or people of color. This time around, you could say up to 45% of the people weren't white. So that's a huge difference. The amount of time available to people to go onto the streets regularly every day and the support from other communities. Mm. Mm. Super important. And I think that that was kind of, that was uh, a telling moment. I wanted to go, and but, you know, I felt, I was still feeling a bit anxious about the whole pandemic thing um, at the time. And obviously for, to protection of family, I was a bit like, mm, okay, let me just stay in and kind of do my bit through the show and um, through my own personal writing. But it became quite a, it was challenging to see because it was like, okay, so now like we are making, we are really kind of like shaking the foundations of, of this white supremacist um, understanding of, um, of what, it, what it means to kind of be alive today and in the West. Um, that kind of fear when you step out of the house and you're not, you don't feel like you can get to, to get to the end safely. You don't know what's going to, to happen. You, you could be stopped. Somebody could decide that today is the day that they're going to, you know, attack you or put a halt to you just kind of progressing and processing. And a lot came up in in those conversation in those riots and those conversations in the videos and the consistent socials and the the consistent conversations around racism um, that is happening that people still blanketly try to deny. And I would love to hear what you think about the the race report um that the UK put out to say that there is <laughs> I haven't read it you haven't got it. <laughs> I haven't read it. I don't think I'll ever read it. You know, I, I understand it's 200 pages or something like that. I, I've, I've got other novels the to read. That they came to, I think everybody around the world knows that those conclusions are ridiculous. Yeah. It, adds, it might have some good things within the meat of it all, but once you come to that conclusion, no, sorry. It's, it's frustrating because we're saying one thing and then they've rallied together a group of people to come to tell the nation that we're not, we're, we're, we're lying or we're making a fuss out of nothing or all of that. And I kind of wanted to ask, cause I know that in my career as a journalist, um, there were, there, there was definitely institutional racism. There was definitely a particular kind of story that they would run with. There were typically um, ideas that were long held that they really upheld with regards to the stories that they were running um, and that I had no kind of option other than to um, risk career suicide in places. Um, mm -hmm. But also I had to think about my community at the same time. So there were things I had to say no to just on principle. What was it like for you coming up you know, the 70s, um, cricketer. Um, and I want to actually, I want to know why you're called the, the whispering death, but we're going to get to there. You know, we'll get there in a minute. But um, racism in cricket. I know you said that 
when you were playing, you never necessarily heard much racism. But what was it like? No, not at all. Like, I never had a racist comment made to me if I'm any cricketer. Okay. If a racist comment was made in my direction, they would have been a long way away from me and I wouldn't have heard it. So I can genuinely say I never got any racist remarks thrown at me from a, a fellow cricketer. You hear it in the stands. On the other occasion on the road or in different circumstances away from the game, people do things or say things that you know that's just them being racist. But as I said in the book, when I was playing cricket, I lived in Jamaica. I spent perhaps three and a half, four months in these countries where I would come across racism. And I just basically said to myself, these people have a problem. I am not going to worry myself about them. I'm swimming back home in Jamaica. I'm rid of them. So I just brush it off. Water off a duck's back. Yeah. So I had no problems. I had no issues where that was concerned. Whenever you came across any bit of racism, sometimes it can make you feel a little bit of a lesser person. Mm -hmm. But again, I just brush it off. I don't have to live this life. That's what I kept on telling myself. I'll soon be home. So no problem. Wasn't, didn't, wasn't, didn't that feel kind of heavy for you though? In a sense. No. As soon as, cause you know, as soon as you get back onto the, I mean, people have these, people have these views about you. No, 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 no. It, it, it was not heavy for me at all. It was not as comfortable as you would want it to be. You know, you go into these countries and you know you're going to come across some idiots. A few, again, I want to stress, more times than not, the tours were enjoyable. And you come across some great people. I've made some great friends all over the world, all different races and creeds and colors. But you're always going to come across some idiots somewhere along the line. And they're going to do something or say something. But again, because it's minimal, you can afford to ignore it and move on. You see, as all my time coming up, if no one actually physically touched me, I could ignore them. I could move on. If somebody would know us to do something other than to pass words or to just do something racist, that might have been a slightly different situation because as a young man going up, I was a little bit fiery. But I could ignore remarks and looks and faces. I could do that because, as I said, I knew I was going home. I didn't grow up in it. If I, was to, if I grew up in the UK, as a matter of fact, I've told people, if I went through what Ebony Rainford went through, there is no way I would have finished my career. I would, no way I would have played test cricket for 12 years. No way I would have gotten to the stage in life that I am now being on, on television because I would not have put up with it and I would have done something that I perhaps should not have done. Yeah. How did you move from being a shy boy to a fiery man? What was that transition like? Well, I don't think I'm fiery. You know, being a fast bowler, you have got to be aggressive being, being a fast bowler. But even so, even when I was playing, I never really said a lot. I went out and I did my job. I bowl fast. If I had to bowl a bouncer or two, I bowl a bouncer or two. You never see any, any film. You never go back and see any film of me saying anything to a cricket on a cricket field or anything like that. And all this mouthing that you see going on now. You never see anything like that from me. 
I kept all that within myself. So I was still being looked upon as somebody who didn't speak a lot, who was still reasonably shy, even throughout my cricket, cricket career. When I was amongst my friends and my family, sure, I would talk, I would be a little bit more outgoing. But away from that, I was still quite calm, collected. And even now, I don't think people would say that I'm fiery. I express an opinion. If you ask my opinion, I'm going to tell you what my opinion is. But that's what you should do as a human being. Yeah, it's what you should do as a human being, to be fair. Kind of keep your opinion, keep your opinion to yourself. No, no, no. You express an opinion if you're asked. Mm, mm, mm. That's that is what I do. You know, in my job, I'm not I'm not a person who sits on the fence when I'm working for Sky. I express my opinion, I give my opinion as to what is happening on the cricket field and to what is happening with various cricketers or whatever like that. That's just the way I am. I am gonna tell you. Because that's my job. And if you ask me anything that even if it's controversial, I'm going to respond. I'm going to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So when it came to, I know because a big part of what you what you say is about our racial education um, and what we learn about race growing up and what that means for us. Um, when did you learn about the man who built the filament in the light bulb and um, and other and other people, other pe- key people of interest who were black, because as you said, you know, you grew up, um, you didn't really hear much of that. You said that you spent a long time in secondary school, but you didn't get any of that kind of education. So when when did you start picking up all of these kind of new things and start seeing that? Oh my! Oh wow! Like there are more black people who are influential than I thought and believed. It was not until I stopped playing cricket. You stopped. And I started. Okay. Yeah. I when I after I retired, I didn't know about a lot of what I know no, I didn't know when I was actually playing the game. I started to read a lot more. When I was playing cricket, when I was touring with the West Indies, I read, but I would read Louis Lamore cowboy books and you know that sort of thing. And novels and that sort of a thing. As I started to travel more as a cricket commentator and spend a lot more time in hotels on my own or on airplanes, I started to read other books, other more informative books. And that's where you learn a lot more about what took place many, many years ago or get more knowledge even about what's happening now. And that is when I started to learn these things. I won't be able to tell you exactly when I learned specific things apart from what i have learned now from doing the research for this book that i am doing a lot of stuff in in that book i didn't know before Mm. but doing the research for this book i i learned a lot more but my learning and my real gathering of information didn't start until i retired from playing international Mm. So what is the one what is one of the key things that you learned? You mean about, about history? history? What was one of the things that I, what, so what, what is the one what's the key thing? Because I always think to myself, like I know for me, the, the turning point for me was um when I read Malcolm X's autobiography. And 
I started thinking a lot about myself and my own consciousness as a black man. I was studying mm-hmm. in Europe at the time. So my blackness was very, very pronounced <laughs> wherever I was um, in France and Spain. So I, when I read um, Malcolm X and I watched the, I watched the, doc, I watched the Denzel film then I watched a documentary of his life. Then I read, then I read parts of his autobiography again. So I wanted to get clear on what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And that was, so for me, that was a key part of my education. Cause I was like, okay, so this is what he stood for. This is his journey. This is the journey of him, of a man that has kind of like moved through particular things. This is what he stood for politically. This is what he stood for in, in his family. This is what he stood for in his community. Um, and it made me learn a bit more, made me open up my mind just a little bit more to kind of really understand who I was in this space and in this context. And I really want to know, like, what was the, what was the person, I know there was so much that you consumed and you, you looked at, but what was the one that thought that you thought, wow, I wish I'd known about this man or this woman before, or this person inspired me? Alex, what I find is people who grow up in communities where they are a minority, they are more apt to look for an identity. I didn't grow up in a community where I was a minority, so I wasn't looking for an identity. So it wasn't as if I was looking to see what other person like me can I read about or look at to try and formulate myself. I, it wasn't like that for me. Growing up in Jamaica, and by the time I got to a sensible age in Jamaica where you're really grasping what's going on and you're seeing the society in which you grow. I think the people in, I think it was what, 90, 97% black by the time I really got into my 20s. So I wasn't looking for an identity. I Everybody around me was was like me, or the majority, vast majority around me were, were like me. If I grew up in England, if I grew up in Australia, if I grew up in South Africa, under the apartheid regime, and I was looking now to lift myself and looking for an identity, perhaps I would have been looking towards people like that if I had heard about them and looking to try and build my life around them or like them if I had heard about them. But I didn't really have that as a young man growing up. As I said, later on in life, when I started to read a lot more about these iconic people, you get to learn. But I wasn't seeking it because I didn't think I had to seek it because I didn't feel uncomfortable in the environment in which I was. So there's a particular context of what it means, depending on where you're from, in that in that real um, when you because it makes a difference yeah. the community in which you're growing up and the country in which you're yeah, growing up for sure for sure. What is more, what if is Malcolm X had grown up in Jamaica, he wouldn't be the person that he is or he yeah. was, because he wouldn't need to be fighting against any oppression or fighting against anything. You say that, it's a and then and then Garvey grew up in Jamaica. No, Garvey went to America. But didn't he? Not, but didn't he not have the ideas before he went to? 
Yes, because when he was a young man in Jamaica, Jamaica hadn't gotten independence yet. They were still ruled by the British. And then he left and went to America. And again, minority. Yeah. By looking for an identity, looking to try and uplift his people. If Marcus Garvey had grown up after independence in Jamaica, he would still have the same thoughts, but he certainly would not have to be as radical as he was and looking to force himself on, on, on issues. That's interesting. I always think about how how we show up in those spaces because I have to sometimes think like, all right, so is it something that everybody should should learn at the same level? Or is it something that is only very specific to specific people depending on where they grew up? So for example, me growing up in London in the 90s and early 2000s, should we have the same level of black history understanding as people from the Caribbean and or West Africa or East Africa should have with regards to their own, with regards to black history and understanding what that means? Like, what does that look like then? Do you know what I mean? If this, if they, if- Yeah, I, I, know, it, I know what you're talking about, you see, if we're going to solve this problem of racism, mm -hmm. we have to make sure that what is taught is even-handed. It's not the curriculum can suit one race. The curriculum has to be one where everyone understands the true history. So if we can get rid of the thought, because it's a false narrative that they, are, they have been pushing for centuries, get rid of that thought of white superiority and white supremacy because what causes that is the teaching the brainwashing that has been taking place when you teach one slant of history when you hide all the great things that people of color have done so that people of color growing up don't have idols and don't have role models to look up to and to aspire towards that is what causes the problem and that is why we need to educate and to re-educate because a lot of what we have been taught were lies. And a lot of the brainwashing that has taken place is going to be hard to get rid of until we can open people's eyes so that them see that it was brainwashing, that it was not what we were taught. If you keep on repeating a lie over and over and over, people eventually will think it's the truth. And that, has what has, that is what has taken place over a very long period of time. So until we can clear people's heads, black and white, of all this brainwashing and to educate them properly for them to understand exactly what the true history is, we're going to struggle. And if you're, in, if you're a minority in a society, it is more difficult because that society is going to be less apt to change. Are people willing? Are people willing to look at the right thing? To look at, to open their eyes and see the light and say, "Yes, this is the way it is. This is not what what we have been taught is not true. This is the way it is, and this is what we need to do now to fix it." Yeah. Are people willing? You know, you have a lot of people that have a very nice, cushy, comfortable life, and they're not interested in anything else. 
they are just interested in the life that they are living. Nothing worries them. They, even when they see all the demonstrations and all the abuse, they're not worried. It doesn't affect them. But we need people that whether it affects them or not to look and to just be human. Show a bit of humanity and a bit of empathy for what is going on around them. And that is what we need for, to make change. Yeah. How do we show empathy and humanity? How do we do that? I think that... Well, we can only hope that people will, when they are re-educated, will learn how to do that. You can't force people to do things, uh, but if you re-educate them and show them what the world really is, perhaps then they can say, yeah, yeah, we know, this is what we need to do. Yeah. If you can show a person a reason to change or show a person to uh, the, the facts to show them what they were taught is not correct, why should they change? No, I, um, what did you think about the... Um the kneeling in the UK. A lot of people were confused by that. They are confused. I'm, I'm not too sure why anyone should be confused. The thing is, <laughs> if, you take, if you take a knee, mm -hmm. I think that is just the accepted gesture to support Black Lives Matter. We're in, anywhere in the world, as, as we have seen, I've seen a Swedish women football team, all white, Take a knee before it will start our game. It's just an accepted gesture. I support this movement. I'm showing my support for the movement. I can also understand, Alex, what I've heard, some of the stories I've heard about some black footballers who are fed up and say, what's the point of taking a knee and nothing else happens? I can, I can sympathize with them where that is concerned. Because if, if that is all that you're doing, if all you're doing is ticking a box by taking the knee and say, oh, yes, I've taken the knee, what's the point? Yeah. You need action after that. And that is what they are saying. Let us see some action apart from just us taking a knee. Mm. I wouldn't stop taking a knee, but I can understand and sympathize with their feelings about continuously taking a knee and seeing nothing happening. And that is the thing, because it's like... When I started seeing, I was like, oh, yeah, this is nice. This is a good um, statement that we're making here. Like, and, you know, to see the football clubs, you know, saying, like, yeah, this is what we're doing. This is what we're focusing on now going forward. I was like, okay. But then also I was just like, well, what actually happens next? Because I'm, I'm and I'm always concerned about what happens next. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good to understand the present. I'm good to understand the present. And I know where we are coming from. There are things that we need to relearn and re kind yeah. of understand about what's come or what's brought us this far. The present is the present we're here. What are we doing next? Well, everybody says what we do next. I don't think it's a matter of next. I think the taking a knee can happen at the same time as other actions that need to take place. I don't think it's take a knee and then stop and then other things happen afterwards. We continue to take a knee while the actions that are required are taken. Are taken. And the actions that are required are reasonably simple. People to understand that what is happening is wrong. 
and people to understand that you need change and not just talk about change. Let us see some real action. I have seen action in the United States that has gone way beyond anything that has taken place in the United Kingdom, which surprised me a bit. Yes. I have read and seen huge corporations in the United States put up millions of dollars to support initiatives and programs to try to level the playing field. What have I seen or what have we heard of in the United Kingdom? I haven't seen anything. I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard any corporations or any big companies coming out and saying, this is what we are doing. The only company is Sky. I know that I put millions of dollars towards anything at yeah. all. I haven't heard anything else. The government, they are trying their best to say everything is rosy. There's not a problem anywhere in the world. You don't need to even look at the curriculum. You hear the prime minister saying, saying we can't go back and edit history. History has already been edited. Yeah. We need the full teaching, not part of it. But that just shows you the attitude of the government and this current prime minister. So I'm not too sure how far we're going to get as far as the administrative aspect of it is concerned. But apart from that, let us see corporations and big companies coming out and forcefully doing things. Don't be afraid. There was a department store, I understand, that Christmas who had a, 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 an ad oh. with a black couple. Tesco. Tesco. And they were slaughtered. Sainsbury's, I think it was. Sainsbury's, was it? They were slaughtered. There was an ITV program, a quiz program that had three black couples. They were slaughtered. Ofcom got thousands of, of complaints. These companies need to stand up and say, okay, you don't like it, we're going to give you more of it. Yeah. Don't be afraid because that is the direction which you need to move. Mm -hmm. We need equality. We can't afford for a few racist people to come out and change any positive action that is taking yeah. place. And I see, I don't see that much happening in the UK. I see a lot happening in the US and I'm a little bit disappointed with the UK. Yeah. I think a lot of what happens here is quite um, behind the scenes. Like with regards, like yeah, you would have, you would have, like with regards to what you said about the advert, they just continued to put more in front of people they didn't necessarily say anything explicitly they didn't say we stand here is what we do they basically just said okay mm -hmm. well you guys are complaining well here's more and then all of the uh, and, and all of the um shows and all of the tv stations started to do that like you know there was a issue with one of the supermarkets that didn't um that that cut somebody out but cut a black woman out of the ad because they yeah, didn't want to make that. and then that was something else as well because then it was short-sighted. It was misguided. It was, um, it was, it was, it wasn't great for their brand um, at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what I do understand is that when it comes to America, a lot of the time when it comes to these corporations, from what I gather and what I've seen, is that when the bottom line is money, um, there is a sort of willingness to take on the, the, the social cause. <laughs> um, if it means that money is no longer being made, then there is a sort of like a, 
oh, okay, well, let's, let's, let's take this dance and let's do it. Sometimes that can end up being very misguided as well. Um, and I just think that sometimes over here, it just becomes, it's like, well, this is the status quo. This is what it's like. This is what it's always been like. We're not going to change that idea and that opinion. And it does mess with your mental a lot because you're just actually just like, you're like, well, what does it take for me as a young black man in this country, as, you know, black women and just black people here to have people in their corner, in their behind them, to support them, to feel supported, to have that sort of understanding of who we are and why we do the things we do and kind of like if we are kind of mistreated, then um, who is there to support us in that? Um, and I think that's a lot of, and these are kind of the questions I feel like a lot of black people have behind in the back of their minds. They go out, we, you know, we go out, we exist, we try to exist each and every day in the way that we want to show up in the best way we can. But if we go out and we don't feel supported, we don't feel that like we belong, we don't feel connected to the place that we are, what, is, what, what do we do? What do we do next? Well, that is the problem. The black people alone cannot change the situation. They have to walk hand in hand with other communities. If black people alone try to do anything, you ain't gonna get very far. When you are the minority in a, in a country, how can you get very far if you are the only ones trying to make change? If you are the majority, you don't need the support of the minority, but the minority need the support of the majority. And unless people join hand in hand, no real change is gonna take place. And the change has to come in the society. That's why I'm saying people have to come together. If the society does not change. If people in the society do not accept that change needs to come, it ain't gonna come. And once that society accepts it and starts moving towards that change, you don't have to worry about football or cricket or athletics or any sport mm -hmm. because the people from the society is what you'll get attending these sports or playing in these sports, participating in these sports. So it's a matter of the society coming together and saying, yes, let us move hand in hand and let us move towards better. Okay. Um, two questions. Just mm -hmm. what are some of the highlights of, of your career that you miss? I don't miss any, anything in my career. I enjoyed my career. I, I had a great time playing for the West Indies. I played a great team. I had a fantastic success. Mm -hmm. You know, I look back on my career with a lot of joy, but I don't miss it. You know, you go through different phases in life. I have moved on from that. What were the good, what were the highlights? Well, beating Australia in Australia for the very first time, 1979, the first with ever West Indies team to beat Australia in Australia. That is definitely my highlight of my, of my career. Is that where you got your nickname? No, no, I've done that. Is that where you got your nickname? No, no, no. I got my nickname from Dickie Bird. I don't know exactly when. <laughs> But Dicky Bird I understand who gave me that nickname. Okay, okay. Do you know why? 
When he said that, the whispering was from the fact that I was so quiet on, on my feet. You know, he didn't hear me when I was running in. And I came from that far back, he had to keep looking to see if I was actually running in. And he said the death was because I was fast enough to kill. Oh, wow. Wow. The whispering death. Thing is that if you were if you were of this generation, you probably would have had that on a t-shirt or something, and you probably would have printed it on a hat. Not me. People, people perhaps would have had it on a t-shirt. I would. <laughs> would have printed it on a t-shirt. Had that trademarked. <laughs> you probably would have had them but like not me in the crowd saying, yeah. obviously whispering. They'd have been like, yeah. <laughs> all right. If I was of this generation, I would probably have an agent who'd have gone about doing that. <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> Um, I just got some final few questions in just to ask you. Um, so one lesson that you've learned or want to change about the way we have conversations around mental health. Um, what I would like is for people to understand that it's a serious thing, that it's real. You know, a lot of people think that people are weak when they tell you that they have mental issues. You know, you heard even that in cricket, when certain cricketers came home from tours and, you know, when you go back to even, even more recent times, you hear a cricketer saying, oh, I can't manage this anymore. And he goes home or he, he's under pressure and he, he just divorces himself from things. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't understand. But what they need to realize is that it is real. And they must be, have a little bit more sympathy with people who do have these mental issues. Yeah. It's almost like the same race thing. A lot of people do not understand racism. But if they took the time to learn, they would then come around. I've, I've had lots of people who have told me that they have come around and they don't understand what's going on. Before they just lived their lives, they, they, they did not need to understand racism. Same thing with mental issues. A lot of people go through their entire life, they have no friends, no families that have had mental issues, so they don't really care too much. They just live their lives. But if you care about mental issues and you start to think and learn and try to read up and understand mental issues, then you'll have, have more empathy for, for people who do have mental issues. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um... Do you have any daily rituals, like any things, any routines that you run through on a daily? Do you just get up in the Grand Cayman and just look at the the, the coast? I'm imagining, I'm imagining you live by the coast. I just feel like you just live. I feel like you wake up and this. Well, I live. I live by a canal. I oh, see. I, I am not far from the sea. Oh, okay. That canal comes in from the sea, and it's the sea is perhaps a half a mile down the road from me. But my, my, I have no real, i tell you what, in the mornings, even if I'm not that interested in the racing that's going on in England, I'm not even having a bet, I turn on my computer and I watch racing from the UK. I do a lot of that. That's perhaps the only ritual that I have. Okay. How do you keep fit? How do you keep active? I walk. How far? I don't walk as much as I, no, as I used to, but I used to walk almost every day of the week, not weekends, every day of the working week. Okay. Okay. Um, and one thing that, actually, no, let me ask you this question. What's one song that makes you feel 
a particular way. So, one thing that's on that makes you feel happy. Makes me feel happy. Mm, feel joy. Joy is the word. Yeah, but there are so many songs that I enjoy. There's there's so Michael, much music that I enjoy. You're gonna you're gonna have to pick one. You're gonna have to pick one. There are so many. That means you that means you must can find one. <laughs> no, but but different music and different songs you listen to them at different times when you're in different moods what was this, you know what was the song the atmosphere around right now okay my favorite song right now is war by bob Marley, okay. which is a speech by his imperial majesty hail selassie that he gave and bob Marley turned it into a song and if you if you look at the words you'll know why with that atmosphere as it is, why it's my favorite song. Because I start about until a man's skin is no more significant than the color of his eyes, he's gonna have war. That's he's talking about the racism and the injustices in the world. But again, that's just with the atmosphere that's on at the moment. I wouldn't listen, sit down and listen to that and feel happy and be joyous about that. But it it reminds me about Bob Marley and how far ahead of his time he was. Ian Marvin Gaye wrote some music that's unbelievable. And people dance, people listen to it, and people don't didn't really hear it. Both of them are now dead, and they have left some music that will live forever. And the words of those songs will live forever. But hopefully, in the future, people will recognize that, yes, we have gotten to where we, these people have, we're talking about. We have gotten to the equal justice and equality in life. But they, those guys were well ahead of their time. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me on the show today. Super, no, man, my super appreciate. So this is your book, We, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, you know, with loads of contributions from amazing black athletes. And um, looking forward to getting people reading that and seeing and, and you know, and picking up the stories from these athletes to get an understanding of their experiences and what it, what it means. I mean, it was super inspiring to to read about Usain Bolt and Thierry Henry in particular, because growing up with them, in like they were never really political because they, they were just, I just remember Thierry Henry saying va boom on the Renault advert yes. and that was it, like, you know what I mean? And it just went quiet after that, um, you know? So these things are important and i'm amazed that we can still be having these conversations in the way that we're having them um and even more so that it's in a book so thank you so much an important contribution in that book as well alex is from jeff harriet the, the headmaster up in manchester talking about curriculum and talking about what he learned as a teacher that's a very important contribution jeff as well harriet. thank you so much for joining me on the show today and i'll catch you all next time